This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. And welcome to New Books and Gender Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Yana Byers, and I'm here today with Pallavi Guha, Assistant Professor in the Department of Mass Communication at Towson University in Towson, Maryland, to talk about her new book, Hear Me Too in India, News, Social Media, and Anti-Rape and Sexual Harassment Activism, out this year, 2021, with Rutgers University Press. And a content warning, as the title of the book indicates, we will be discussing rape today, and this may not be appropriate for some listeners. Hello, Pallavi, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, Jenna. Thank you so much for having me here. And um, I'm excited to have this chat with you and, uh, you know, with, uh, for our listeners as well. Wonderful. Oh, so how are you today? I'm guessing you're well into spring in Maryland? Well into spring in Maryland, uh, nice and bright this morning, although we ha- do have storm warnings. So we'll see how the day goes. Uh, <laughs> but you know, it, it's it's been a good day to start with. <laughs> Excellent. That would be kind of fun, you know, if we got some uh, thunder and lightning to kind of spice up this discourse. Although, honestly, we don't need it. This book is exciting enough on its own. Um, you know, I love spring. A lot of people love spring. And it's about kind of rebirth and renewal. And it feels like it's this opportunity to do something new, you know, you can like, you get a reset. And uh, it feels like that feeds into our discussion today. Like that seems, it seems like a good time to be having this discourse. Uh, I agree with you. I love spring as well. Uh, it's the beginning of uh, longer days, uh, more sun, and uh, yes, beginning of newer things and moving from, away from gloom and monotony. <laughs> Yeah, so let's hope that's a metaphor, actually, for the way we handle the issues we'll be discussing today in the globe. All right, so I've taken a look at your your CV, and it tells a good story. You had a full career before as a journalist, right, working as a freelancer, and then with the BBC and the Times of India. Um, so I'm curious, what made you decide to get a PhD? Right. So uh, I came to academia, like, much later. It was not straight out of, uh, you know... Oh, and being an undergrad. And so it it was kind of funny. So I spent a couple of like several years as a journalist. And um, as you said, um, I moved uh, around the globe as well, working as a journalist, and it was very fulfilling. Then, um, you know, I moved here with uh, my partner, my husband, and I was working as a freelancer then as well. And uh, as you know, journalism is a profession which needs a lot of upkeep and evolution and you constantly have to learn. So I belong to a generation of journalists who did not have Facebook, Twitter, social media when we were working. Uh, so I, I had to reskill myself. So I had to go through the certification programs here so so that I was more employable in the market and I could keep working here uh, in the U.S. as well. And, um, you know, as I was doing that, I came across a program at Rutgers. Um, It was a digital communication program, master's. So I started the program and then I had the opportunity to to teach a class as well as a part-timer. And I really loved it. I absolutely loved it. And uh, I was I was doing this and I was also working part time freelancing too. And but I love teaching. And uh, I wrote a couple of papers, uh, which got you know presented, I presented them at conferences. So that was the other side of academia, I got to see like scholarship based. So I started, um, you know, looking around and seeing what 
is it going to take me to become a full-time academic and uh, a, a full-time professor and a full-time researcher? So this led me to the path um, of PhD in journalism. So when I got a PhD, I was already a journalist. But when I was working as a journalist, I never had an educational background in journalism or communication. So it's kind of funny. My background um, has been in international relations and politics. So so that's the path I chose. And then I became a full-time academic since then, since 2013. Wonderful. Yeah, it's a pretty good gig. If you, you know, um, if it's for you, academia is a, is a wonderful place. Um, so um, I'm interested too, though, in the, the scope of your work. And it seems that I can see an interest that, that in uh, these, this topic and kind of the, the feminism, uh, sexual assault, etc, that predates 2013 as well. So how did you decide to study th- this topic? I have always been interested to study um, uh, sexual harassment and uh, sexual abuse. So this is years before, like when I was a freshly minted undergrad, I had started doing a project, which I I could not complete because I didn't get the grant, on on women's tourists visiting India and uh, getting sexually abused. Uh, but I also, and I also belong to um, a university and, and the, my college undergrad institution, it did not offer um, women's studies as a discipline. Uh, so uh, the choices were like quite rigid, how you have to, you know, go through your degree plan. It was quite rigid. So, of course, I did not have the opportunity to do that then. So when um, I came back to academia after like several years, for me, it was an opportunity that, you know, now now I was able to focus on sexual harassment and sexual abuse. And uh, when, I was start, when I started this program, Jyoti Singh, you know, she w- had been raped and murdered by then. The, the hashtag Nirbhaya, the Delhi gang rape had already happened. So I really wanted to understand, pick up where I had left in early 2000 and understand if Hashtag Nirbhaya had made any changes because it was well over a decade. There was social media now. And I really wanted to go deeper and understand what are the changes. You know, start with the basic question first. Has there been a change at all? So that's why I decided uh, to choose uh, this topic. So it's... Excuse me. So this has been with you for quite some time. And that probably uh, and that explains as well how you decided to situate the most of your your study in India as well. That's correct. That's true. Yeah. But um, I mean, this and this book focuses on India. It's in the title. Right. But it also I feel it contributes to um, an understanding of the global situation. Um, and it nestles in with Anglo-Western ideas to create feminism without borders, which is a, a, a phrase we know well, yes? Right. And um, I focus quite a bit, um, yes, of course, it's uh, on India, but you can use this concept, this framework to understand the global South. So often, you know, when I came back to academia, I was reading a lot of theories, a lot of academic um, work from the Western scholars and academics, including in feminism. Uh, But I just wanted to understand how they could be contextualized, not just for India, but also for the global South, because a lot of times what works here does not work there due to, you know, various intersectionality issues. Um, So, you know, it's not just race and class and gender, as as, uh, Kimberly Crenshaw has pointed out. I mean, it works wonderfully here in the U.S., but in the Indian context, if I was to talk about, there are other issues such as caste, religion, and even location. Uh, That plays a major role. And um, it's not just India, the global south, the countries in the global south, they're very diverse. Digital access, that's also an intersectional concept. That could also be a lens. So trying to understand them and um, incorporating them in my work that, that was something I really wanted to do. And uh, yeah, so that kind of helped me. Mm-hmm. And I see a, a, a hole in the scholarship here as well, right? Um, 
where, where there's a lot of work on post-colonial studies. There's a lot of work on feminist theory. Uh, but there's, there is a whole um, kind of a, in a global access or in like the intersectionality that works in India and how that might apply. So yeah, yeah. So um, I was trying to understand that gap and propose something that's that that is going to you know possibly uh, take a path and um, kind of you know we get not just me but other scholars as well. When more people start working, we can we can have fill up those those gaps. Yeah, and I, uh, that definitely is it's, it's working here. I'm seeing like this is that your work contributes to a broader discourse as well that I think we'll see we'll use for some time. Um, all right, let's talk about your source material. So the study focuses on social media, um, and that's a source that I can't imagine working with. It seems like it has so many pitfalls. I'm terrified of it, and you just jumped in. So can you can you comment on like how you chose to use it, how you made those choices, how you approached the subject material? Just tell me how it was to work with this with, with the social media content. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I was in two minds, honestly, um, when um, I was uh, looking at social media platforms and when I started doing uh, the primary research it was around 2016-2017 so there some of the platforms that are around now they weren't around so and and also in the context of India I had really had to choose which platform was more popular more people were on it so that's why I decided to go with Facebook and uh, this is before like Facebook pre uh, the Cambridge Analytics uh, scandal and pre Cambridge Analytics discussion. So some of the APIs were still available, like how I could use and download uh, their data. So what I um, really wanted to study were all the feminist pages and feminist uh, accounts, uh, the larger ones in India. What were their discourse? What were they talking about? Um, when were they formed? Were they fra- formed before uh, Jyoti Singh's rape and murder, or that is something that happened after Jyoti Singh's murder? And how? What? What's the kind of conversation uh, that we, they were having on their pages? So I really started with, um, you know, going technical first, choosing the top three or four uh, pages. I think I chose uh, top three pages top three uh, feminist pages. And uh, then I chose also the feminist groups, which were open. And uh, I used an API to download that data, which was possible then, uh, you know, before uh, Facebook locked everything up. And, um, and, And that was a lot of information because most of the people in India, they are still comfortable using Facebook and WhatsApp. So I got first, I got the data of how many people are there, you know, what percentage of people are on Facebook and what percentage of people are on um, Twitter. And WhatsApp was kind of opening up around that time. It was it was becoming popular. Now WhatsApp is the most popular platform. It's closed, but it's 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 uh, the most popular. And that's why I chose Facebook. At the same time, when I was doing the interviews, other than the uh, social media platforms, I asked some of the feminist activists as well, what's the platform you're most comfortable in? What are you using? So that also helped me get a sense that they really like Facebook. Uh, they uh, they like to use Facebook because um, of the accessibility and also to be able to write long posts, not being limited by 140 characters. Then it was 140 Twitter. Um, so it was it was overwhelming, but uh, I'm just thankful that uh, it was not locked up, <laughs> unlike now. <laughs> sure, yeah. Um, well, and there's a different kind of discourse you have on Facebook, right? Like there are things you do on Facebook that are different than what you do on Twitter or, you know, uh, I don't understand TikTok and I'm, I'm going to keep it that way, um, you know, or Instagram. There are different ways, but Facebook seems to be um, the, uh, the right the right platform for this discourse. So, um, but there, you're still dealing with, I mean, in some ways, these faceless, like disembodied voices, which I find to be interesting. Did that, did this ever strike you? Did you have any thoughts about that? So I, honestly, I decided not to look uh, at the identities, like the people who were posting or engaging. A, because, you know, there are ethical issues and concerns. 
they don't know that they are open. A lot of times they don't have the knowledge that it's open pages, like, or open accounts. So I did not want to uh, use that precarity to kind of look at their identity. Uh, What I really focused was uh, on the messages that were being posted and the kind of interactions. What were they talking about when it came to rape and sexual abuse? Um, Did they want justice? Did they want... uh, you know, to make public spaces more safer? Or did they want policies? And if so, then what kind of policies? What kind of justice? Or, you know, they were, a lot of times there were posts which were co-opted, like they were used for other purposes, for political campaigns. So that's why my focus was completely on the messages and not the people who were contributing to the messages. And then, of course, you, you you conducted interviews where you were able to look with people. So uh, who did you talk to? So I spoke with um, 75 journalists and feminist activists. Several of them were from rural uh, areas as well. So speaking with the journalists, I am a former journalist. Um, I spoke with um, several of my colleagues and uh, some I wanted to, you know, also speak with others who were not my colleagues. <laughs> Because it's a different kind, who were not my former colleagues, different kind of interaction. So I reached out to them through LinkedIn. Um, I used um, Facebook as well uh, to recruit. And um, as far as uh, the feminist activists are concerned, I reached out to several through Twitter, Facebook, uh, some, especially the rural feminist activists. My former colleagues helped me quite a bit because they had interviewed, they had knowledge. So I was able to reach out to them through uh, through my former colleagues as well. They're journalists, so uh, they helped me put in touch. So I spoke with them before the hashtag MeToo happened and after the hashtag MeToo happened. And I spoke with uh, several, you know, new folks as well after hashtag uh, MeToo happened and that helped me to get a sense of not just how after 2012 the feminist anti-rape and sexual uh, assault and abuse feminist activism had changed reporting had changed but what impact did hashtag me too in after 2017 and hashtag me too india after 2018 that influenced the activism as well and how were they incorporating in their work was there anyone that you excluded from this discourse? Anyone you didn't want to talk to? Uh, yes, I did. I uh, consciously ex- decided to exclude uh, groups, women's groups, which were affiliated, formally affiliated with political parties. Uh, and that comes from my personal experience as a journalist. Um, you know, I, I have I have mostly seen, and I've also written about that as a journalist, that they always... Um, you know they always align with their party's discourses and 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 their and, and their party's policies so anything i ask it would it it would the conversation would be more political and less on anti rape and sexual uh, violence activism <clears throat> so that was a conscious okay. decision that is uh, that's very like that's a very interesting choice and it and you explain it in in the book a little in a bit more detail and it makes perfect sense to me. Um, I don't know that I would have thought about it, but I guess that's why it's your work. Um, it's a, <laughs> very interesting, and I got the feeling that these are um, these interviews you're doing them over a long period of time, as you said before and after me too, but also that you you put a lot of time in with these people. I got I felt that you really knew these women. Yeah, I. Um... And it was not just me who knew them, they knew me as well. Because as a feminist scholar, I believe that they are not just my participants. This is not I who who's interviewing them, but we are having a conversation. And um, I spent with them, you know, 40, 45 minutes, at, I mean, for, for each of the interview segments. And then every time it would be like, okay, you know, they would ask me questions. And, and one of the questions some of my rural feminists asked me, uh, activists, they asked me that, okay, tell me about how, what's the situation of, um, you know, sexual abuse and assault in the US? You're there. What is it about? We never read about it. Do you, ha- you, do you have a problem or do you don't have a problem? Do you not have a problem? <laughs> uh, so, you know, this, this is like, you know, having, literally having a conversation like we are having now. 
and I still keep in touch uh, with 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 some of them. Several, you know, if they want, like I I still keep in keep in touch with them. So that helped me. And one of the things I just want to say aloud, they had nothing like they had no expectation as in you know every time i would say i'm taking a lot of your time or do you want to revisit if you are not comfortable we'll not talk about it it's like no i want to talk about it and you know they had no expectation as in you know where are you publishing what is going to be the outcome they were happy to share about their work and the problems that they they were facing that was also important for them Mm, wonderful. I mean, that, yeah, I can see that comes through as well. Um, you know, and this is, uh, it's a question I wanted to get to later on a broader framework, but let's start here. I mean, th- that also speaks to the idea that there is a dialectic between um, media and the, and consumer media and, and subject media and participant, right? Right, right. Yeah. Uh, so there is a dialectic no, between between both those you know those two platforms but uh, what i understood was for the feminist activists you know how they were navigating the social media platforms especially facebook for them it it was more valuable in their dialogues and dialectic with those um, journalists that they were having especially mm-hmm. when they you know they needed to seek support help if they had to reach out to an official if uh, if others were not taking their complaints or they had to they reach out for support it was through these journalists that work and that worked and not through the open calls on social media platforms all right <clears throat> and so you engage directly with your decision to refer to your participants as victims instead of survivors, which is an ongoing discussion. And I'd like to hear your rationale on that. Sure. Uh, so I asked uh, the feminist activists I uh, you know, spoke with, I asked them directly, how would you term your work? Like, are they victims or you know, are they survivors? Or a lot of them were survivors themselves. So everyone had a different thing to say. Uh, some of them said that, you know, we would like to be called survivors because we have survived, we have come out strong and we have survived the ordeal. Others said that, yes, we have come out strong, but I have been victimized. I am a victim of of that situation, of, of that incident. So I would like to be called a victim. Yes, I have survived, but, you know, I am still a victim. For the uh, for the rapes that I discussed as um, you know as as part of my uh, discourse and to understand the news uh, framing on on those rapes, how uh, the news media they were uh, kind of discussing them. All the rapes that I discussed, they also ended up in uh, the victims losing their lives, so they could not speak for themselves. So because they also lost their lives, I have turn them as victims so that's a decision i have taken but uh for, for my other participants it's something i ask them directly mm-hmm. so um while we're on terminology you still you use the word rape <clears throat> and this is a dis- this is another issue that does goes under that is about which there's a lot of discussion um really a uh, highly contested idea of using the term rape instead of sexual assault. Can I ask what your rationale is for that? Sure. Uh, so I use sexual assault as well uh, as, as one of the terminologies, sexual harassment, sexual abuse, and rape. Uh, so I, I do think that sexual assault is a more broader term where you could also include like other sexual violence and uh, sexual uh, a lot of times, uh, sexual harassment is also included in that terminal terminology. But um, I decided to use the term rape because, again, when I was having a conversation with my, um, especially with my feminist activists from the rural areas, they use this term. They don't use, so I translated, right? So they don't use mm-hmm. the term sexual assault. So there is a term in both Hindi and Bengali which translates directly to, to rape. Um, so that's why I, that was one of the reasons why I uh, decided to use the term rape. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, and so in your introduction, you explained how you chose the rapes you wanted to discuss. How was that? What, how did, what was your decision process? 
So my decision process, of course, I, I wanted to understand how Jyoti Singh's rape and murder, that made, um, that, that's, you know, that is termed as a watershed moment, both in scholarship and in activism, as well as news media, how social movements work. When, um, you remember, I was talking about, uh, as a newly minted undergrad, during my undergrad days, I, uh, I was interested in doing a study on uh, sexual abuse and uh, sexual uh, assault of uh, women tourists who were visiting India. So after I had graduated, and um, I, I think around that time I was doing my first job as well, there was a, a rape and murder of uh, an Indian woman in one of the bigger cities. Uh, she was raped and murdered by uh, the driver of her for pickup car and and it is it's that period when the it and its sector was booming in india and she had night shift she was either returning home um yes she was she was going to work and she was raped and murdered so around that time there was a huge outcry and uh, there were some policy related changes that uh, that happened like uh, the organizations they implemented a few changes that women uh, were to be you know there would be other people in the car and you know if there were night shifts uh, they would be given some you know, there would be a specific time when they would be offered night shifts so you know you could directly see that her rape and murder it had some kind of an outcome a policy related outcome and in 2012, we see that happen as well. In 2016, um, a Dalit woman was raped and murdered in in Kerala. She uh, her rape and murder was um, was termed in the media as uh, the other Nirbhaya, Nirbhaya again, Nirbhaya too. But um, I looked at the discourses on social media sites of the larger like you know the feminist groups as well as the news media it wasn't even 50 percent of um of what like you know um, after nirbhaya's mm -hmm. rape and murder happened so now she belongs to a marginalized community she belongs to a location which is further removed from one of the larger cities one of the capitals but she was uh, for the first couple of weeks she was termed as uh, nirbhaya too nirbhaya too so Jisha, that that's her name. So so Jisha. So the, but there was no, I would say either policy outcome or a concrete public narrative and public agenda. So that's why I wanted to study like why is it so? Why did that happen? And to understand what are some of the factors that influence, you know, creating a policy, creating a larger public narrative. Mm -hmm. So the policy outcomes that you're talking about that I'm seeing um, tend to focus once again, and as always, and as everywhere, on limiting women's choices and on teaching women to avoid being raped instead of, you know, the other option, perhaps suggesting that people not rape. Um, and you talk about the framework you use to get at this. Mm -hmm. uh, so can you, would you comment there? Can you explain this to me? Yes, of course. And I want to explain this, um, not in my words, but in the words that one of my uh, rural feminist activists, her name is Shutopa, she, uh, she shared with me. So I was speaking with her after hashtag Me Too India happened. And um, I was asking her, tell me something about it. Like, you know, how is you, how's, how are the younger girls and women in your community? How are they reacting to it? I'm sure they have access to social media platforms and digital devices. And she said, oh, yeah, they know what is happening. It's not that they don't know, but they can mm -hmm. never share their sexual harassments using those hashtags. And I asked her what you just asked me, like, why? Um, and she said, uh, it's because their families in well-meaning ways would limit access to public spaces. So if they were getting harassed on their way to educational institutes, or if they were getting harassed in the educational institutes or workplaces, then their families would say that, okay, your cousin or a male member can accompany you to the public, to, you know, uh, in, in, uh, accompany you, or uh, you can complete your education through distance learning, or you can just, you know, you, can, you don't have to work uh, 
So it's basically limiting their access to public spaces. So teaching them or helping them not to get raped. And that was a conversation I have also heard growing up, like things you do or things you do to avoid not getting harassed, not getting assaulted, right? Uh, and, and that's pretty much there as well still now, even though uh, there is access to social media sites, there are these specific hashtags that you could use. But we have to recognize that not everyone has the privilege to do it. It's a privilege. It's definitely a privilege. Uh, and I think, though, the, the, we also see with policy, it just fundamentally shows sexual assaults of all forms, kind of how that still tends to be viewed as, um, in some ways, a property crime or an honor crime, right? This is not about the damage to women themselves so much as to the men around these women. Um, yes, and that was something that came up repeatedly when um, I was, uh, look- so there was no social media when um, I, I, uh, I talked about Pratibha, who was raped by uh, the driver of her car, like her pickup car, and uh, there was no social media then. This is back then. But I, I was reviewing the framing of the news reports, and she was married. It was framed as if, you know, it, it, it was more heinous, as if, you know, and, and the pain that not just her mother was going through, but also her husband. Uh, and and there was a lot of focus on this. Uh, it's it's the honor of the family, the the honor of the family that was uh, that was taken away, the, the the honor of the family that that became part of the discourse. Um, and I'm interested in the the difference. Um, I mean, obviously, in a, a a country as huge as India with a staggering population, um, there's also this amazing difference, um, really astounding difference in rural locales and these massive urban cities. Um, so you discussed the difference between the way rural and urban women and rural and urban feminists saw the impact of the Me Too campaign, right? Right, right, um, and. Um... For, so for the rural, for the urban uh, women, especially who were able to share their uh, sexual harassment, sexual assault at workplaces, not just, you know, from recent years, but also like to, from, from several years ago, 2008, like early 2000, late 90s. So that gave them a space. In fact, I talk about a couple of, um, of urban uh, women specifically working uh, who, used, who were and who still are in uh, the news industry. And how uh, when they had uh, approached their organization, nothing happened. They did not get justice. Some were forced to leave the organization. And this space, the hashtags um, and the social media space, that gave them a platform to again voice their, um, you know, to, to voice their uh, their experiences, to share those experiences and let the larger public know the larger uh, audiences now as compared to that um for the rural feminist activists and uh, the rural women they saw it very differently uh because like i said they not all of them they had the privilege to use those social media platforms using the, uh, the hashtags and i specifically talk about um, um about a, a rape survivor uh, she she was raped in 2017 by a political leader. And uh, in around 2018, uh, a rural journalist interviewed her. And uh, he asked her specifically if she was going to use the social media platforms to get justice, to seek justice for herself. And she said, I don't have a phone. and I don't watch TV. And um, I wanted to get justice, of course, but I lost my father. So there is like, you know, kind of a disconnect. And that was there was an attempt on her life in 2019. And her mother, she was injured. And she was like, um, the attempt of uh, the rape survivor, she was grievously injured. But her mother, she categorically told uh, some of the you know, smaller news portals that, you know, you deserted us six months ago. And uh, we need you because if you desert us, how are we going to get justice? So for mm-hmm. them... Journalists are still, and news media, that's still platforms which amplify their voices, which help them to get justice. 
and uh, my rural feminist activist said the same thing if we are ever stuck if someone is not taking a complaint and we have to pick it or you know others are uh, not taking our our complaint we can't file an fir it's our journalist um, the journalists help us we reach out through whatsapp so they aren't on open platforms asking for help because a lot of them a they feel burdened to use the social media platforms b they don't have the bandwidth so it's a choice between doing grassroots activism grassroots helping others or being on social media sites and so what is um what are the differences in the rape myths about these these groups of women so actually let's let's let me back up a little sure. what is, what's a rape myth first of all <laughs> so um so rape myth is a concept that um, you know I I borrowed from here from the Western scholars. Uh, they have written not just now but from the the seventies and eighties as well. So rape myths are basically frameworks that either a victim is you know there's a dichotomy. There's no gray area. Either the victim is a you know a, a virgin who who has been raped and who is now her life is completely in shambles or uh, the victim is a whore and she totally deserved this so uh, mostly it works in this dichotomy so what i've really seen and even through the interviews i understood that after 2012 journalists especially in india they were trying to reframe from using the rape myths especially the whored um in a framework and victim blaming at least they were moving away because they did not want to get called out on social media platforms so they were being um they 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 were they were being very uh, i would say you know they were they were they were at least trying to move away from that framework so that they knew that they should not be using that victim blaming and poor dichotomy Mm-hmm. Um, and that happened after um, 2012. Uh, however, there are other rape myths still, and not all the time you read about them in the news media. It comes through the conversations, like you know, in in rural areas or semi-rural areas. Oh, such things happen um, because the audience or the readers of these larger newspapers, it's mostly the urban, uh, Indians or the urban audience, or, you know, we can carry it later. It's, it's okay. Um, or, or the, our audience is not going to be interested. So deciding whose story gets, uh, to be told and whose doesn't. So that also influences the rape myth. Right. Yeah. Very like, then that kind of, Who's deserving is another thing you talk about, right? Which we'll get to in a minute. Um, and I, I mean, these rape myths also lead to um, to an outcome because you know if if the if this was a good woman who did not have it coming, then her life has to be destroyed, right? And it makes it very hard to recover. Um, and, and so you get you see women getting written into the script as perpetual victim and broken eternally right eternally broken and uh, you know she was uh, and then there is scandal associated with with some of the women so one uh, one of the victims talk about uh, how she was repeatedly raped for several years by political leaders and she you know she said in, in in one of the news interviews that i will never get to be the country's nirbhaya like i will never get to have that place no one is going to talk about me because i am still fighting for justice by myself because you know her rape was part of the scandal mm-hmm. in in the sense that you know i i i am not the country's daughter so that's uh-huh. yeah so and and she said that and um it's because several people were involved, several political leaders were involved, a political party was involved. So she has been fighting very hard for several years just to get justice for herself. And she repeatedly said, no one is going to fight my battle. I'm not the country's daughter. I'm I'm never going to be Nirvaya. And if you... Yeah, it's it's just heartbreaking. And if you read... um, if, if you read all the news articles associated 
you know, uh, reporting on her rape and even uh, while she was trying to get justice, it's the scandal frame has been used like mm-hmm. a, a lot of times. The word alleged repeatedly. So when you oh, use the okay. word alleged, alleged repeatedly, you are questioning Right. And once again, as as I think, you know, I say all the time when I'm doing these, when I'm talking about this topic with, with writers, for the only crime where you actually have to, where the victim has to prove that the crime has taken place. No one, no one says to someone when they say, my watch has been stolen. No, can you show? Yeah. Do you have a receipt for that watch? Yeah. I don't believe you. Right. That's so maddening. And actually, uh, so chapter three is called The Heart Does Not Bleed for Everyone, Selective Outrage and Activism. And it's so important. Right. And I usually try to come up with like really clever questions that'll get you there. I And I don't want to do any of that. I just want you to tell me what happens in this chapter. Just tell our readers what you say. It's so important. Sure. Yeah. So I like, you know, I gave some of the examples these are the examples and these are the stories I talk about. Like, you know, Jisha, who's, you know, for who the heart wasn't bleeding as much by the others. Or even her, like, you know, so, uh, she's known as the Surianelli victim. The heart doesn't bleed for her at all. One of the journalists um, I spoke with, and I write um, to a large ex- write about it um, to a large extent in this chapter, he said that uh, right after... Um, a, a, a year or a couple of months after um, Jyoti Singh was raped and murdered, a similar thing happened in the city. He belongs to a southern city. And uh, a, a woman from the slum was raped and murdered. And he asked me, did you read about it, Pallavi? Did you read about it? I said, no. And uh, I, I read my news very closely. Right. I'm like, no, I did not. I was like, did you hear about it? I said, no. And he said, see, I don't have to tell you more. Um, And I asked him, did your newspaper carry it? He said, no, that's why I'm telling you. We did not carry it. I mean, we had the news, but it was like, you know, pushed back and back and back because she belonged to a slum. So it's, um, she belonged to a slum. So it was kind of, uh, okay, we'll carry it. We will carry it. And then it was out of the news cycle. But he said, believe me, it was as heinous and as gruesome as Jyoti Singh's rape and murder. And uh, yeah, and so, you know, we don't even come to know. So the heart really doesn't bleed for everyone. So it's the select few. So how the media chooses and how the social media as well chooses who they're going to fight for, who are they going to light a candle for, who are they going to create a hashtag for. It depends on a lot of factors. It's sad. It is very sad and heart-wrenching. But uh, mm-hmm. these conversations just, you know, they kind of point out to to the stories that we miss, the victims and, we and, miss. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And let's talk about why we miss some of these. Um, you know, it happened in the slums in part. That's, this is a person who is not, is not important, but right. Like not important. I'm making air quotes. Um, but also the idea that these kind of things just happen in slums. Slums are bad. That's a bad neighborhood. Of course, bad things happen. That's not, how is that newsworthy? It's just reaffirming our prejudices. Right. Right. And even in rural or semi-rural areas of, you know, these things happen, uh, these things happen and they are not one of us. Right. So majority of the people who are on social media platforms, who are influencers or who do hashtag, you know, to take care of hashtag activism and even uh, journalists, they always um, it's, you know, when the victims or even the survivors, when they're like us, there is more value that's placed. Mm-hmm. So for Jyoti saying it could have been any girl, any woman who's working in a large city you know, was just having a, a, another day. It, it could have been you, it could have been me, it could have been any, anyone, any one of us. So there was, even the public, the citizens, they had more, um, I would say, they, more relatable. So the more relatable mm-hmm. the victim or the survivor is, the more uh, they become part of the story, part of the conversation. Mm-hmm. Sure. And that is relatable to the readers, which means uh, wealthier, more educated, urban, right? 
and um, these are people more worthy of everything, of course, right. including safety. Right, right. <laughs> Whose bodies are more worthy and valuable? Yeah. So, um, uh, we're we're running, we're getting low on time, and there are just sure. a few things more I want to discuss. Um, so, just this one: What have we learned from anti-rape feminist movements? What what can we do with this? So, a couple of things that <laughs> I learned. <laughs> Um, I learned a couple of things. One, we really can't focus on any one single platform for for anti-rape and sexual uh, uh, harassment feminist activism. So hashtag MeToo and hashtag MeToo India was mostly focused on social media platforms. It gave a space to women and uh, survivors uh, who, who had been harassed and assaulted in workplaces. It gave them a space when news media largely failed them because several of their own were involved, it gave them a space. But that's also possibly one of the reasons why we do not see a policy-related outcome yet. There are lots of conversations, but no policy-related outcome yet. Similarly, we cannot only focus on, on news media platforms because a lot, you know hashtags, they have the ability to push forward. They have the ability to amplify, right? And uh, we have seen that uh, when uh, we we have seen the same thing when I was talking about uh, the rape survivor from one of the smaller rural areas and she was interviewed by rural journalists and smaller portals, but no one really fought for her cause until there was an attempt on her life. So focusing only on news media doesn't work as well. We do see hashtag Nirbhaya. And Jyoti Singh's rape, like after Jyoti Singh's rape and murder, there have been a concrete policy. There have been larger public narrative, and it's still going on. Even after you know eight and a half years, there are still conversations around it. And one of the reasons um, that I see and I've learned that it's possible, it's because of the conscious effort and the conscious interdependence between the two forms. So hashtag Nirbhaya. This hashtag was created by one of the news media platforms. They created this hashtag. They created this name. And uh, social media platforms, it amplified. So it was not just news articles that we were seeing and we were reading, but we were also seeing at the same time amplification of, you know, of protests or, you know, using the hashtag to ask the government or to make policies or seeking justice. So the number... So I analyzed the number of, you know, hashtag related comments on Facebook, okay, around 2012, 2013, and then using the hashtag, hashtag me too, more recently in uh, 2018, 2017 and 2018, believe me, hashtag Nirvaya had more comments. And this was when social media had evolved so much already. So you would think there are more users, it's more evolved, you would think that there would be more comments. But no, it was far more. Similarly for news articles as well, it was far more as compared to um, hashtag MeToo and hashtag MeTooIndia. So when there's a concerted effort, we do see an outcome, concerted outcome. Mm-hmm. That's that's very, that's fascinating. Because I would think like hashtag movements would be inherently more egalitarian and and, and like, you know, this is crowdsourced, but apparently no, we're still... Uh, subject to our media overlords or whatever. Right? Yeah, and I think it also depends, like I said, uh, the global south is very different. So India is one of the few countries and possibly one of a couple of countries which in 2019 had a circulation growth of newspapers and which we see not happening in Europe or in, in Northern America. There's a constant you know, downward trend, mm-hmm. decrease. So it's an anomaly, it's an anomaly in itself. Um, so where in a country where the newspaper circulation is growing, you really can't um, neglect that platform, the relevance, mm-hmm. even though social media is so prevalent now. Sure, certainly. Um, so uh, what's going on now? So what's what are, what's your new work? Tell me what you're working on. Sure. So right now I um, just completed working on political campaigns in India. There's always an election that is happening, either state or (laughs) parliamentary. So my recently completed work was um, how parliamentary elections uh, during the last one, did they include 
discussion on sexual harassment and sexual violence. And uh, what if there was any impact of hashtag Me Too or hashtag Me Too India? Because a lot of election campaign is online now. We see a lot of discussion. So what has been the interaction between the two? Um, or what is the impact of that on uh, policy related issues or you know political conversations? So I just completed that doing interviews. So right now, I am working on another project, which is similar, but it's different in the, tra- in the sense that I'm ta- speaking with uh, digital strategists and political campaigners, and I'm asking them. So I'm seeing that news and images of sexual violence from rural communities in the states where elections are happening that are being shared on social media platforms but that are not reported on the news media. And these are being shared by either candidates or by political strategists who work for them. But uh, there is no conversation around how policies are going to be created. So what? So why are you sharing and who knows and why isn't the news media sharing? So I'm trying mm-hmm. to investigate that and figure out what is the role of sexual violence in political on digital political campaign, not just Mm -hmm. on the ground political campaign. And I mean, and that's an outcome, right? Maybe not a policy, but like a pre-policy outcome. Right. Or, you know, if it's just used to to draw the attention, because like, you know, in my previous work, uh, when I was... um, I I was looking at uh, sexual violence and sexual violence incidents and how it's used in on-the-ground political campaign as well as in newspapers. So during the interviews, the journalists said, um, a lot of journalists said, they you know, a scandal frame is used when it's uh, related to political campaigns and sexual violence. It's either to discredit the candidate or to discredit the safety, uh, like, you know, women are not safe. So that framework is largely used. So Hmm. I am learning new things every single day. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, and that's that's the that's great, right? That's so fun. I love the idea that we can keep learning forever. That's the whole point. That's yeah? true. That's true. Oh. All right. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a really fun conversation um, about a, a decidedly unfun topic. But uh, your your discussion in this your book is uh it's 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 a great it's entertaining as well i can tell you were a journalist right i just want to note that you have a really wonderful writing style um but this is a very challenging material and uh the story is largely untold so thank you for writing it now thank you so much for having me and uh, you know giving me the opportunity to share what i learned through writing this book through this entire process so thank you Excellent. And we will talk uh, when you publish your next one. Oh, I'm looking forward to that. (laughs) All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.